Well, if you have your Bibles, turn them to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That's where we're going to be this morning. Verses 9 through 12. I'm going to zero in on verses 9 and 10, but we'll touch a little bit on verses 11 and 12 as well. Okay? 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 through 12. And this morning, we want to continue the series that we've been on titled The Calvary Distinctives. Uh, just uh, as we've mentioned before, biblical uh, priorities, essential principles that we want to govern and guide uh, ministry uh, here at Calvary Bible Church in the present and into the future uh, by the grace of God and the Spirit's empowering. We've already seen the first three of these Calvary distinctives that we want to emphasize. Uh, first of all, we saw that Calvary Bible Church is a Bible-centered church. Secondly, a Christ-exalting church. And thirdly, a God-dependent church. And by the way, tonight we're going to have an opportunity once again to flesh out our desire to be dependent upon the Lord. We will be having a time of praise and prayer tonight uh, from 5 to 6.30 in the great room. Last week we had uh, a packed great room and I was so thankful to see that. Uh, So many of you coming out to pray for the needs of this body. And so tonight we will be doing that again, seeking to flesh out our desire to be a God-dependent people. Today we want to look at distinctive number four, distinctive number four, a love-expressing church, a love-expressing church. Uh, A classic must-read for you, uh, if you're interested, um, and if you like uh, bulky kind of uh, reading, uh, is Jonathan Edwards' uh, book, uh, Religious Affections, Religious Affections, uh, where basically Jonathan Edwards uh, talks in there about... Uh, the Nature of Genuine and Authentic Christianity. Um, he wrote the book uh, to explain and to respond to people who were skeptical uh, at that time of uh, 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 the uh, massive spiritual revival that took place in um, the period of, uh, that we know as the Great Awakening, which uh, happened or occurred during the mid-18th century. There were many skeptics. Uh, that didn't believe that God could actually do what he did during that time. And so Jonathan Edwards wrote to explain and clarify the nature of true conversion. And throughout the book, uh, he, on the one hand, talks about those uh, signs that are not guarantees that one is genuinely converted, that are not sure um, guarantees that one has been saved. On the other hand, he also talks about the fact and makes the point that there are evidence in a per, uh, evidences in a person's life, namely affections, that show that one has truly been changed by God. And at the top of the list that Edwards gives as an evidence of the fact that somebody has been transformed by God is love. Love. And the prominence of love is what he highlights at different places in the book. And he writes this, For love is not only one of the affections, but it is the first and chief of the affections, and the fountain of all the affections. And then he expands upon what flows from a maturing, growing love in the life of a person. He writes this, From a vigorous, affectionate, and fervent love to God will necessarily arise other religious affections an intense hatred and abhorrence of sin, fear of sin, and a dread of God's displeasure, gratitude to God for His goodness, complacence and joy in God when God is graciously and sensibly present, and a grief when He is absent, joyful hope when a future enjoyment of God is expected, and fervent zeal for the glory of God, and in like manner from a fervent love to men will arise all other virtuous affections toward Men. His point throughout is that the presence of love for God and love for others leads to other things in the Christian life. For example, growing holiness and a desire to be like Christ. A desire to please the Lord. Thankfulness for His goodness toward your life. Gratitude. The presence of joy and hope and zeal for the glory of God. And even more fervent love for other people, for other believers flow from the fountain which is love you know that emphasis by edwards on love as the chief of christian virtues shouldn't surprise us because our lord jesus spoke about the importance and the crucial nature of love 
In Matthew 20, uh, 22, verses 37 and following, when the hypocritical and self-righteous Pharisees asked Jesus which was the greatest commandment of the law, Jesus replied and said to him, You shall love your, the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So how did our Lord Jesus sum up all of God's law and commandments? Love God and love your neighbor. What is the ultimate motivation for obeying the commandments of God? Love for God. What is the ultimate motivation for loving your, your fellow brethren? Love is. That is the motivation. Love for others. In John chapter 13 and verse 34, on the night of His betrayal, the Lord Jesus spoke these words to His disciples. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And he wasn't saying a new commandment in the sense that they had never heard of that commandment before. If they knew the law, it had been spoken in the law, that they should love God and love their neighbor. It was new in the sense that this love would now be enabled under the new covenant by the indwelling Holy Spirit in a new way. And not only that, but new in the sense that it would be patterned after Jesus' sacrificial love for them on the cross. And later on that night... Same night of his betrayal, Jesus said in John fifteen twelve, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. And isn't that exactly what Jesus did, beloved? He laid down his life for you and I, wretched sinners saved by grace. He laid down His life for us, showing us what self-sacrificial love truly looks like. It is in the Gospel that we see the ultimate expression of love in that God loved wretched sinners in Christ. Amen? Since love is so prominent in Scripture then, it follows that Christians should be, listen to me, the most loving people. And churches should be known and have a reputation for our love for one another. This is, of course, first of all, something that must begin with our love for God. But it should also flesh out into, onto our love for one another. I marvel at Christians over the years, and in my own life I see this, that many times we boast about a great vertical relationship with God, and oh, I have such, a, such great times with the Lord. And yet, many times when we survey the lives of believers and their interaction with other believers, there are all kinds of problems in those relationships that they have with other people. And yet they boast of a great vertical relationship and devotion with the Lord. It simply cannot be the case. Or we're indifferent to other people. And this is where I want to focus, beloved, then, on this morning. Our love for one another as a reflection of the fact that we claim to love God. We should see it visibly and tangibly in the way that we interact with one another. Amen? Our love for one another. So as we look at this text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, there are four characteristics that I want us to examine together that speak of the nature of this love. Four characteristics of love that should help us foster a culture of love for one another. I know that these are not exhaustive, of course. I just want to draw out some characteristics of love that are important to keep in mind as we strive to be a love-expressing church here. Okay, First, the love that we are to foster as a church is a divine love. It is a divine love. That is, it does not originate with us. Whatever expressions of genuine love that you see in your life as a believer toward others is a direct result of God's transforming power in your life. Look at verse 9. 
Now as to the love of the brethren, here's a specific topic of Paul's commendation. He wants to talk to them about their love for the brethren, for other believers. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. As he often does in his letters, including this one, Paul affirms these believers regarding their love for their fellow brethren. They were a loving church. Look at verse 10. For indeed you do practice it toward all of the brethren. This was a loving church and Paul commends them for this. But the love that they as believers and we practice toward one another does not originate with us. This is not self-taught love. Notice what he says. This is God-taught kind of love. God teaches us to love one another. If you are a believer this morning, take great comfort that you are enrolled, beloved, in God's school of love. God's school of love. Where He teaches you and I as Christians how to love Him and to love one another. And there are two primary ways, kind of as subpoints here for you, that God teaches us to love one another. First of all, God teaches us to love in the gospel. He teaches us to love in the gospel. As we ponder and we reflect upon the gospel, we learn about a sacrificial love, do we not? A sacrificial love displayed by God toward us. John 3.16, you know the verse, let's say it together. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Amen? Notice, God loved, therefore He gave. At great personal expense to Himself, God sacrificed His own Son for sinners such as you and I. Think about that. His Son The Son who existed for all eternity with the Father, along with the Spirit, in perfect fellowship and sweet loving relationship. God has sacrificed His Son for sinners such as you and I. In the Gospel, beloved, we see sacrificial love exemplified for wretched sinners such as you and I. In the Gospel, God teaches us unconditional love, does He not? Unconditional love. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4 says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, and listen to this, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. God loved us, beloved, even when we were dead in our transgressions, in our sinful rebellion. In our desperate predicament, God stepped in to save us, even though we were running away from Him. Nobody runs toward God in a spiritually dead state. Nobody seeks for God. Romans chapter 3. God sought us out. Showed us love, even in our rebellion. In our moment of crisis. See, for us, as human beings, even as believers, we tend to, to love only those who, are, who we, deem, we deem worthy of our love. Not so for our great God. We did not deserve His love. He stepped in when we were in the middle of our wretched condition, not seeking after Him, in rebellion against Him, and showed us unconditional love by crushing His own Son on the cross, who took upon the wrath of the Father for our sins that we deserve, beloved. In the Gospel... God teaches us sanctifying love, doesn't He? Sanctifying love. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let me show you this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. In the gospel, we see sanctifying love displayed by God. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And look at verse 11. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. He's speaking to believers. Such were some of you in those sins. But what did God do? But you were washed. 
or cleansed, purified. You were sanctified, meaning you were set apart from sin unto righteousness. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. We were declared righteous in Christ, beloved. Not because of our works, not because we are, we are able to find acceptance before God based upon our performance. Because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we were justified. God stepped in to save us, wash us, set us apart from sin to Himself, and declared us righteous in Christ, that we would no longer be slaves of sin, but be slaves of righteousness. God's love is a sanctifying love. I love what one pastor has said. True love is always most concerned with the purity of its object. True love is always most concerned with the purity of its object. We see this in the gospel first and foremost. That God, because He loved us, wants to set us apart so that we would be holy. Amen? It is a sanctifying love. So God teaches us love in the gospel. But God also teaches us love by His Spirit, does He not? Because unless the Spirit of God is working in your life, you simply won't be able to love as God has called you to love, beloved. Our love as believers for one another is Spirit-empowered, Spirit-enabled. Romans 5 Verse 5 says that the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The Holy Spirit's ongoing ministry in the hearts of believers is one of teaching and enabling you and I as believers to love with God's kind of love. This is why according to Galatians chapter 5, in that list of the fruit of the Spirit, love is in that list. And only as we submit ourselves in obedience to the Spirit's leading can we manifest love for one another that is genuine and authentic, beloved. The Gospel and God's Spirit teaches us to love with a divinely given kind of love that is the love of God. You know, this explains why each of us, the most unlikely formerly wicked people, can actually love one another because of God's work. I know a man, his name is Bill. And if you were to look at Bill, externally, he's one of the the hardcore-looking kind of men that you will ever meet. Scars all over himself, tattoos all over himself, but he is a teddy bear. He loves people, he serves people, he will bend over backwards for you any day. Even if he didn't know you very well. That's the kind of man that he is. But if you would have known Bill prior to coming to Christ, the kind of man that you would know was a gangster, a mobster, a drug addict. He was one who shot at people and almost killed people. He was one who was shot at. He was a womanizer. He was a hater of authority. So much so that he even fought cops, winds up in jail, almost gets killed in jail, almost kills somebody in jail, is there for years and years, and then the Lord saves him, beloved. This tough guy. And changes him. And all of a sudden, Bill is a loving man. What happened, Bill? What happened to you? I'll tell you what happened to Bill. God changed him and put his spirit within him, empowering Bill to be one of the most loving men that I know, genuinely, sacrificially, and authentically. He is a loving man. God taught Bill to love. And he is no longer a hateful man, but a loving man. Beloved, if we are going to be a loving people, and a loving church all the more, then we need to be reminded of the fact that apart from God, His gospel, and His Spirit, it simply won't happen. It won't happen. Unless you are, you are being reminded daily and trying to understand the riches and the treasures of the love of God found in the gospel, you simply won't take that love and share it with others. You won't. You want to learn to love in a greater way? Dwell much upon what God has done for you. 
what God has done for you in the gospel of Christ. That He has sacrificed His Son on the cross as the only sufficient payment for your sins, that you may be forgiven, that you may be reconciled, that you may be at peace with your Maker. All of these beautiful realities, beloved, forgiveness and reconciliation and peace with God and joy and hope, all of these beautiful realities flow from the fountain of God's sacrificial, unconditional, sanctifying love. Amen? All of them do. What a great divine love this is that we have been shown. Now this divine love that God has taught us, that we desire to foster among us, God desires that we visibly, tangibly express it for one another. Toward one another. So first, this is a divine love. Secondly, this is a shared love. A shared love. As we behold the love of God in the gospel, we realize that God wants us to take His kind of divinely shown love, beloved, and demonstrate it genuinely, visibly, tangibly toward our fellow brethren. And that's the type of church the Thessalonian church was. A church that loved one another. Look at the middle of verse 9. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Verse 10, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. These believers practiced love for one another. Present tense, continually practiced. They were characterized, patterned for their love for one another. Now notice what he doesn't say. It does not say you are taught by God to love yourself, does it? To love one another, not love yourself. You know what, what is at the heart of secular psychology and secular therapy methods? We are told by psychologists that the answer to your problems is that you need to love yourself more. Love yourself more. The way, the reason why you feel the way that you feel the reason why you feel unfulfilled and the reason why you do the things that you do are because of the fact that you need to love yourself more. This could not be further from the truth, beloved. We don't lack self-love. Our problem is not that we don't love ourselves enough, beloved. What is our problem? Our problem is that we love ourselves too much. We love ourselves too much and don't love God and others enough. That's the problem. We are selfish, self-centered, self-preoccupied with our own needs at the neglect of others' needs. This is our problem. The world also tells us that love for others, as defined by God, should not be the driving motivation in our behavior, but rather what should drive... Everything in your life is what makes you feel good. It doesn't matter whom you harm. It doesn't matter whom you damage in the process, whom you hurt. As long as it feels good, do it. Because true freedom, after all, is to be carefree and to fulfill the pleasures of your heart. This is true freedom. To live and to do what feels good at the expense of other people. That is what we hear all the time in the world system around us. Amen? It is. It doesn't matter whom you hurt. Who cares about the purity of your object of supposed love? As long as you get what you want, you're willing to exploit somebody else to get it. That should not be the case in the church, beloved. Oh no. God has taught us differently in the gospel, has He not? Look at Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. What yoke were these believers carrying? The yoke of this group of, of false teachers called the Judaizers who were saying that it was good that you had Christ, but you needed Christ plus circumcision. Plus, the keeping and adherence of certain Jewish festivals and certain laws. 
It was great that you had the Lord, but you needed the Lord plus adherence to these things. And Paul says, no, 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 no. It was for freedom that Christ set you free. Keep standing firm in that freedom. Do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Don't be driven by legalism and put your trust in the adherence of those things. It's all about Christ. Christ is sufficient, he says. You're free. Stand firm in that freedom. Now, on the other hand, while you reject legalism, look at verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren... Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. So the freedom that we have in Christ rejects legalism. It's all about Christ and He's sufficient. But on the other hand, we also should reject libertarianism. We have not been freed in Christ so that we live for our flesh and the passing pleasures of sin. So why have we been freed? Look at the middle of verse 13. But through love, serve one another. You have been freed in Christ, beloved, so that you lovingly serve your brothers and sisters in Christ in the power of the Spirit of God, which is exactly the point that he makes right after this passage. Walking according to the fruit of the Spirit. Loving your brethren. And what is the motivation in verse 14? For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And what is the opposite of love for your neighbor? Verse 15, But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. So your freedom in Christ is not so that you can live it up. It's so that you can lovingly serve your brothers and sisters. It's a shared love, beloved. We who are free in Christ can love with the most committed, authentic, genuine love. And in fact, he goes on in chapter 6 and starts talking about those loving responsibilities amongst believers in the, in the hardest, most desperate times of life when there is sin involved. And we have to come alongside of one another to restore one another and to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. We who are Christians have been empowered, beloved, by the Spirit of God to love with the most genuine and authentic type of sanctifying love in truth and in love. What a wonderful thing that is. And why should we do this? We should do this because, again, this is what God has done for us in the gospel. God has come. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God stepped in. You and I were not seeking Him. We were spiritually dead, unable to respond to spiritual stimuli. And God stepped in and saved us and transformed us. So we imitate His love for us. In the most desperate moments of life. How would you define this shared love for others? How would you define love for your fellow brothers and sisters? This is how I define it. Love is the genuine, self-sacrificial giving of yourself for the intrinsic benefit of another person, expecting nothing in return, regardless of how you feel, even if at great personal cost to you. Love is the genuine, self-sacrificial giving of yourself for the intrinsic benefit of another person. In other words, not for what you can get out of it. Expecting nothing in return, regardless of how you feel, even if at great personal cost to you. That is a counter-cultural kind of love, isn't it? Counter-cultural. God teaches us to love and empowers us to love. In a counter-cultural kind of way, beloved. And it is difficult. It is hard. But God would never command us to do something that He will not help us to obey. Amen? You know what makes it so hard and so challenging to love other people? For one thing, is that we're so different. Right? We're so different. We're uniquely different. And yet the gospel addresses our differences. That we are different, that we're uniquely made, and yet our common denominator is who? Who, beloved? Christ. Christ is our common denominator. This is the beauty of the gospel. That we are so different, different personalities, if you will, tastes, demeanor, facial disposition, 
We are all wired so different. Just look around the room right now. We're so different, but we are one in Christ. One in Christ. We have a different upbringing and background. Some of us were poor. Some of us were rich. Some of us were middle class growing up. Some of us came from educated backgrounds. Some of us from uneducated backgrounds. Some of us from strong homes. Some of us from broken homes. Some of us were raised in the city. Some of us were raised outside of the city. And we carry some baggage from those backgrounds. We are so, so different. Yet we are one in Christ. One in Christ. And we're called to love one another. Different ethnic backgrounds. Some of us are white. Some of us are black. Some of us are brown. Some of us are yellow, blue, red, pink, whatever. Right? We are so different even in skin tone. But we are one in Christ if you are a follower of Jesus. One. And we are called to love one another. That's the beauty of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, beloved. That though we are so different and otherwise outside of Christ, if we were unbelievers, we would not even want to be caught dead with one another. But in Christ, we want to be around one another. That's crazy. But that's what God does. This is why I challenge you, get out of your comfort zone and meet other believers in this body who are different than you. Get out of your comfort zone. Because you know what is worse than outright hatred towards others that you don't know? Indifference and neglect. That is even worse. Keeping people at an arm's length because they're not like you. Because they don't have the same background that you have. Reach out to one another. Neglect and indifference toward others is counter biblical love, beloved. Love is to be shown and shared toward all of our brothers and sisters despite our differences. But you know what else makes it so challenging to love one another? Our sin. huh? Our sin. That we are sinners. As somebody has said, life and ministry would be very easy if it weren't for who? For people. Life and ministry would be easy if it weren't for people. Amen. Preach it. I believe that. Only one problem is I'm in that as well. Right? We are all sinners. You and I are included in there too. We're weak. We're as sinful as the next person. We are sinners saved by grace. And sinners sin against one another. And sinners hurt one another. And sinners harm one another. Because we are sinners. Beloved, listen to me. We should not be shocked when there's sin amongst us, when we sin against each other. The issue is how we deal with that sin. The issue is not that people will not hurt you, that people won't harm you, that people won't rub you the wrong way, that people won't sin against you. The issue is, how will you respond when it happens? Will you practice God-like kind of love? Gospel-driven love. Spirit-empowered love. Christ-like kind of love toward your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the issue. Showing this kind of love sounds and seems impossible, right? It is. This is where God dependence comes in. The cry of our hearts should be, Oh God, help me despite my differences with that person, despite my hurts, despite how I feel I have been wrong, to practice gospel-taught, spirit-empowered, Christ-like love toward my brethren. Help me, Lord, to do that. It is my greatest desire to do that. And if I don't desire to do that, then there's something wrong with me that I need to confess. Because Christ-like love toward your brothers and sisters in Christ is about manifests itself in confession of sin, in forgiveness, the granting and the asking for forgiveness, in reconciliation, in peace with one another, beloved. That's how we flesh out this God-like kind of love. So sharing your love with others is a spirit-wrought thing. This is why if your life, listen to me, if your life is not patterned to love other people, if you don't care if you love others or not, if you don't even have a desire to love other people, you have some hard questions that you need to ask yourself. And the first one is, am I really born again? Have I truly been converted? If love... 
is characteristically absent from your life and you don't even desire to love other people or see the need to grow in this area, you have some serious questions to ask yourself, beloved. A litmus test of your spiritual maturity is whether you are characterized as a loving believer. Isn't that the point of John in 1 John? One of the tests is, how can it be that you love God, you say you love God, and yet you hate your brothers? You are a liar. The truth is not in you if you do not love your brother and sister in Christ as a manifestation of your love for God. Read it. It's right there. It's the Word of God. And we're called to obey it. The love-expressing church must remember that God calls us, beloved, to a divine love, a shared love. Thirdly, an exemplary love, an exemplary love. Go back to 1 Thessalonians if you're not there. An exemplary love. Thessalonica was one of the cities of the greater region of Macedonia. But the Thessalonian church is commended by Paul throughout this letter because of the fact that they are known outside of the four walls of their own church and their own city by other believers outside of Thessalonica All over Macedonia, they're known for their faith, according to chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, and for their love for one another. Look at what he says in verse 10. For indeed, you do practice it, that is the love of the brethren from verse 9, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. So in other words, not only within the four walls of their own church, but other Christians were recipients of the love of the church in Thessalonica. They were known, they had a reputation, beloved, for being a loving church. They were known for their love for one another, and Paul commends them for that exemplary, spirit-empowered kind of love. We as well, in response to God's divine love, we need to be committed by the strength that the Spirit supplies to foster a love toward one another in our local church, all the more, beloved. All the more. So that like the Thessalonians, we're known for their love for one another and for other believers, by the grace of God, Calvary Bible Church can be known in the same way, all the more. Amen? All the more. For an exemplary, God-dependent, Spirit-empowered, Christ-like kind of love. Because you know why? As we do that, we make the gospel visible to the community around us. I love what Mark Dever says there. The church, the people of God, makes the gospel visible. In other words, we demonstrate by the way that we pursue holiness and we love one another. And we are rejoicing and and worshiping God together. We demonstrate to the world around us that there's something that God can do in their life to deliver them from chaos and from their desperate condition that they would live for the glory of God as well. That people so different from such different backgrounds who wouldn't be caught dead around each other otherwise can actually love being around one another. See, we model that. We we flesh that out before the world around us, beloved. When we love one another. So which one is it, Kempis? Should we have a reputation for being a church committed to the truth? Or should we be devoted to love? Which one of the two? How about both and and not an either or? Both love and the truth. My prayer, beloved, for our church is that we would all the more be known for our absolute commitment to both truth and love. Because I see both of them in Scripture. Both of them. And the ultimate personification of the perfect tension is the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't He? Of truth and love. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is in Jesus. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 21. He is the substance of all reality, if you will. And yet, when you watch our Lord Jesus in the Gospels walk amongst people, and you see the way that He interacted with people of His day, and you see the personal touch, and you see the compassion, and you see the mercy... He was the ultimate example of love, wasn't he? 
The ultimate example of one who spoke the truth in love. And in the power of the Spirit, beloved, that is what we ought to emulate. Speaking the truth in love to one another that we may grow and mature as a body of believers. May we be known as an exemplary church into the future that holds tightly to truth and love in a wise tension. Amen? The love-expressing church must remember that God calls her to a divine love, a shared love, an exemplary love, and fourthly, a maturing love. A maturing love. Paul has commended the Thessalonians for their exemplary love for one another, but he doesn't want them to grow stagnant, to stop growing in this love. Look at the middle of verse 10. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. To excel still more. To keep growing, in other words. To keep maturing in this love. And they had a particular unique historical circumstance for them. Look at verse 11. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. There was a belief amongst some believers within the church at Thessalonica that Jesus would come any day. And that was a very good belief to believe that Jesus could get there any moment. The problem was where they took it. Some of them began to quit their jobs and become busybodies. And in doing that, they became a reproach to unbelievers for their laziness. And they were showing counter love in their laziness. And their apathy and passivity, all in the name of the fact that they felt Jesus was coming back. This is why, beginning in 4.13, Paul begins to deal with the issue of the dead in Christ. And then in chapter 5, instructs them about the day of the Lord. And in light of this, what Paul is calling them is to a maturing love, which in their historical circumstance was to be shown in their loving consideration for one another, working hard with their own hands so as not to be people who cultivated a bad reputation with the unbelieving world around them. This was their context and why they needed to excel and grow and mature in their own love. So Paul says in verse 10 to his brethren, Excel still more. Keep growing in your love. God has taught you to love. You are practicing God's kind of love. You are an example to others outside of the church. But keep maturing in your love. And beloved, Calvary Bible Church is called to continue to grow and mature in our love. And what does this mean? What does it mean to abound in love for one another? To abound in love for one another. To grow in our love for one another. Go to Philippians chapter 1. Just a few pages back from 1 Thessalonians. Philippians chapter 1. And let me show you this. It's a similar instruction that Paul gave to the Philippian believers by way of a prayer. That they should grow in their love. And what I want you to note here is that the love that God calls us to have for one another is not some wishy-washy, superficial, emotionally driven kind of love with no substance. I want you to notice that here. Verse 9 of Philippians 1. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Notice, he prays for an abounding love. That they would continue to grow and mature in their love. And that is the subject, the main subject of his prayer here. That they would grow and mature in this love. But this love has some companions. Okay, look at verse 9. He says that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. In real knowledge. In deeper, fuller spiritual knowledge of God. And not only that, but in all discernment. Discernment is the word from which we get aesthetics from. It refers to moral insight or perception. So this is love, listen, informed by the truth of God's word that leads to spiritual and moral insight and spiritual understanding. Maturing love also results in wisdom. In wisdom, look at verse 10. So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. 
as we grow in love informed by the truth and in spiritual and moral insight, then this love, listen, will result in our ability to approve those things that are excellent. What does he mean by excellent? Not just to approve between those things that are good as opposed to those things that are bad, but to be able to approve those things that are essential, vital, most important, crucial in life, that are in accordance with the will of God. In other words, a growing, maturing love should flesh itself out in wisdom. Skilled living, beloved. Skilled living. Results from a growing and maturing love. I want you to notice also in verse 11, this maturing love is productive or fruitful. Verse 11 says, Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Paul says, I want you to abound in your love for your love to grow and mature that you may be fruitful. What does he mean by fruit of righteousness? Well, he's talking about the type of conduct that is pleasing to God. You might say even the fruit of the Spirit should be manifested in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, all of those things. The good works that God has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. An abounding love should lead to fruitfulness in your life. Because all of a sudden you're being motivated by love for God, love for others, and you are chomping at the bits to use your gifts and your abilities for the service of other believers. See how that works together? It's not some superficial, wishy-washy kind of love that lacks substance. It is active. It is growing. It's maturing. It's not dormant or sterile unless you are not a believer and you are not in Christ. Then that will not be the pattern of your life. And again, I'm not talking about will you struggle to love? Will there be deficiencies? Will you be weak? Will you be selfish many times? I'm talking about the pattern and the direction of your life, beloved. That when you realize that you are not walking in the love of Christ, you desire to confess and repent and ask for forgiveness and continue in the power of the Spirit to now walk according to the love that God requires of you. That's what I'm talking about. Biblical maturing love then, listen, is regulated, informed by the truth. It results in wisdom, and it is productive. Fruitful, righteous, living results from it. Far from the so-called love of the world, right? Far from it. So let me ask you, how is your love life? How is your love for your brothers and sisters? Is it growing? Is it maturing? Are you actively seeking and pursuing proactively to express love to others by meeting needs? By coming alongside of others, encouraging them, comforting them, bearing others' burdens, praying for one another? You want to know what stifles growing, maturing love? Unforgiveness? Bitterness? Grudges due to hurts committed against us? When we hold those things in, we may think and fool ourselves into thinking that somehow we can have this great vertical relationship with God. It simply will not happen. We are deceiving ourselves. Nothing stifles love for God and love for others, beloved, than when we're unforgiving, bitter, and hold grudges against one another. And that is not practicing gospel-driven, spirit-empowered, Christ-like kind of love, is it? On the other hand, you know what allows you and I to grow and mature in our love? When we, in the power of the Spirit, practice gracious, gospel forgiveness, reconciliation, and the pursuit of peace with one another. All because God makes that possible. All because He has shown us and taught us how to love that way in the way that He has dealt with us. Do you realize... That as Christians, of all people, we are positioned by Almighty God to love in the most genuine and authentic manner, beloved. We of all people should be, can I put it this way, the most gracious people alive. We should be the most gracious people alive. 
We who have been saved from so much should be the most forgiving, the most peaceable, the most joyfully loving people because God has shown us true love in truth in the gospel of His beloved Son. And in a gracious community, we accept one another. Are you saying condone sin? What do you mean, campus? I don't mean condone sin. I don't mean sweep sin under the rug, excuse sin, be not about holiness. What I'm talking about is this, that if in the gospel God has accepted a sinner in Christ, then we of all people should practice biblical forgiveness and reconciliation and peace with one another and not hold those things against somebody who is in Christ continually. We of all people who have been shown the grace of God should be the most gracious people and accept one another. If God has accepted us in Christ, beloved, we should accept and love one another. And it does not mean condone sin, excuse sin, sweep it under the rug. God certainly didn't do that, did He? God crushed His own Son on the cross. He took upon the wrath of of His Father upon Himself for our sins in our place. So God did not sweep sin under the rug. He poured His wrath upon His own Son who made the payment for our sins. So that is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about practicing and being committed to a kind of love that is a sanctifying, purifying, gracious kind of love, beloved. That we be committed to working through issues, to forgiving one another in light of how much God has forgiven us. If we're going to be a love-expressing people, a love-expressing church, we must remember that God calls us to a divine love, a shared love, an exemplary love, and a maturing love that is not stagnant, that is not passive, that is ever increasing and growing in the power of the Spirit of God in imitation of the love that we have received from the Father. And it is a Christ-like kind of love. Amen? Let me pray for us. And then Tim Adams is going to come on up. Father, thank you so much for the love that you have displayed toward us. You have taught us how to love by example. And Lord, I pray that in the power of your Spirit, you may help us to be a loving church, a loving people toward one another. Help us to be committed to working through the most difficult things as a body that we may express and flesh out our claim that we love you, Lord, in the way that we care for one another, in the way that we love one another. In Jesus' name, amen.